When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, this is Mick Jones of Foreigner, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Pantheon Podcast presents... Deeper Digs with host and rock and roll archaeologist, Christian Swain. Music. Culture. Technology. And rock and roll. Now, on with the show. As we taxied down the runway, I could hear the people shout, they said, don't come back here, Yankee. But if I ever do, I'll bring more money. Because all she wants to do is dance. That song was written by our guest today. Danny Korchmar will be joining us in just a minute to discuss his uh, storied career in music. So hold tight for that. All right, a bit of news. Uh, Two shows I need to highlight for you, new to the network. Uh, First up is an amazing, whimsical podcast called Invisible Arts, and it's hosted by Richard Gibbs. It's a story-driven podcast. Um, You know, it kind of begins with Richard's experiences in music and then goes from there. Uh, It will take you to amazing places and give you good thoughts with a smile. Richard Gibbs is the composer of the Battlestar Galactica TV show. Uh, He did the music for The Simpsons for the first few years, and he began as the keyboardist for the new wave band Oingo Boingo. He's worked with just about everybody over the last several decades, and he owns one of the truly great studios in L.A. called Malibu's Woodshed Studios. The second sample I have for you is another show on Bob Dylan. Um, This one's a bit different. Uh, It's called Bob Dylan, About Man and God and Law. It is hosted by Professor Stephen Arnoff. Uh, It is heady stuff, diggers. Take the Rocker Archaeology podcast and take that to the next level. Uh, Yes, it is our second show dedicated to Bob Dylan, uh, but who in rock and roll deserves more than one show? Certainly, Bob is in that discussion. Also, I'm very proud of the show because the good professor has told us he was inspired by the RNRA to make this podcast. Um, by the way, I believe this is a limited series um, and is in conjunction with a book that uh, Stephen Arnoff is working on. So keep that in mind. Uh, Dr. Stephen Arnoff is the CEO of the Fushberg Jerusalem Center, a cultural center in the heart of Jerusalem, writing and teaching at the nexus of religion and popular music. 
He is releasing the book Bob Dylan about man and God and law in 2021 in celebration of Mr. Dylan's 80th birthday. Okay, that's it. Real short and sweet. Let's get to our show. Picking up the prisoners and putting them in a pen. And all she wants to do is dance, dance. Rebels been rebels since I don't know when. And all she wants to do is dance. Molotov cocktail, the local drink. And all she wants to do is dance, dance. And mix them up right in the kitchen sink. She wants to do is dance. Crazy people walking around with blood in their eyes. And all she wants to do is dance. Yeah, that was a huge hit for Don Henley on his Building the Perfect Beast album. Uh, by the way, I saw that tour and was blown away, especially by the guy we're talking to today. Danny Korchmar was Henley's writing and producing partner throughout most of the 80s. Uh, Danny Cooch Kuchmar is an American guitarist, session musician, producer, and songwriter. Uh, Korchmar's work with singer-songwriters such as Linda Ronstadt, James Taylor, Dave Crosby, Carol King, David Cassidy, Graham Nash, Neil Young, and Carly Simon helped define the signature sound of the singer-songwriter era of the 1970s. Jackson Brown and Don Henley have recorded many songs written or co-written by or with uh, Cooch, and Korchmar was Henley's songwriting and producing partner in the 1980s, as we've already established. Yes, he is another in our immediate family series. Uh, We've had drummer Russ Kunkel and bassist Leland Scalar. Uh, Coming up, we will uh, be talking to Wadi Wachtel and Steve Postel. Um, Yeah, stacked band. (laughs) But today, it's all about Danny. Uh, Born in New York, uh, and yes, literally childhood friends with James Taylor. Uh, After cutting his teeth in New York City, he followed his friend out west when Peter Asher took Taylor out of the London uh, scene for the bright, sunny West Coast. Uh, Being on Carole King's Tapestry and Sweet Baby James, uh, these two albums solidified him as a first-call session musician, uh, just as L.A. is becoming ground zero for the music industry. He got plenty of work throughout the 70s, Uh, even made uh, a band with Russ and Lee called The Section, uh, which you all may remember when uh, we talked to Russ and Lee, uh, which they all became known as whether they were working in the band or on sessions for others. As I said uh, with Russ and Lee in their interviews, uh, the Zenith uh, might be playing on Jackson Brown's Running on Empty live albums of original tunes. Not that you know, they uh, didn't continue to do extraordinary work uh, and continue to do uh, today. Um, I think you'll hear uh, Danny mentioned that, you know, right up until the pandemic, all of them were, you know, uh, insanely busy uh, as if uh, it were a normal day uh, and one that they have been experiencing since the 1970s. Uh, He scored movies uh, uh, like Cheech and Chung's Up in Smoke, didn't know that, and worked on the L.A. uh, version of Rocky Horror Picture Show, which kind of got the ball moving for the movie. Uh, And he does play Ronnie Pudney uh, in Spinal Tap. So (laughs) along with Russ, 
uh, he's in uh, that greatness of a rock and roll fake excess. In the 80s, he worked a lot with Linda Ronstadt and is featured in several of her MTV era videos. Uh, most importantly, he is her musical director for her 1980 tour. And you can now hear just how fucking badass that band was with Linda's recently released Live 1980. Make sure you go and get that. In 1984, he co-produced and played on Don Henley's album, Building the Perfect Beast. On that album, he wrote the songs You're Not Drinking Enough and All She Wants to Do Is Dance. Also on that album, he co-wrote the songs You Can't Make Love, Man With a Mission, Not Enough Love in the World, Building the Perfect Beast, Sunset Grill, <laughs> wow, and Driving With Your Eyes Closed. Uh, we could go on and on about his work, and we will uh, get a lot of that in his career. But today, he is a part of the immediate family band. And if it wasn't for this God's damn pandemic, he and the rest of the guys would be out on the road showing off their stuff. As Danny likes to say, they are a cover band that does originals because they played or wrote on all the songs they cover. Get it? So much more, but let's get the uh, man himself to let us in on all the secrets. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Danny the Cooch Korchmar. I feel the earth move under my feet. I feel the sky tumbling down. I feel my heart start to tremble and Welcome to Deeper Digs, uh, Danny Cooch Kuchmar. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's a it's a nice day here in California. I'm up in uh, Northern California. You're down in Southern California. Yeah, well, it's beautiful down here as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, you're you're known as Danny and Cooch, uh, mm -hmm. but I want to know about another alter ego to start this conversation with. Yeah. Um, you are Ronnie Pudding of the same. <laughs> the the zenith of my career. Absolutely. I believe the zenith of your career. Yes. Uh, yeah. 1967. I, I believe this is the third iteration of the band that ends up being known as Spinal Tap. But first, the new originals, I believe, uh, and then the Thames Men, and, and then Spinal Tap, right? Uh, I think you're leaving out when the, the, the Flower Power group had a different name. I can't remember what they called themselves. Oh, oh, but but isn't that the part that you you were in? You you know you. I was uh, in the Thamesman. I was, uh, you know, the higher of my career was being in Spinal yes. Tap, and when I tell people that, <laughs> they lose it. They freak out. It's like, uh, it's really uh, amusing to me. Yeah, well, actually, to be now, it, first of all, I got to say that you played with John Stumpy Peppis, okay, um, but now you play with Eric Stumpy Joe Childs. That's Russell. Yes, uh, <laughs> Russ and I both have that that. That, uh, that, that connection, having uh, having been uh, having both been 
like Spinal Tap. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and uh, that was not your first uh, uh, foray into, uh, let us say, comedy, mm-hmm. uh, because you uh, were uh, very instrumental in the Cheech and Chong uh, first movie, Up in Smoke. Right. Well, we had a lot of fun with that. Lou Adler got in touch with with me, and I got in touch with Wadi. Wadi and I got together and wrote out a couple of themes, nice little quick themes, and we ran into the studio and just hit it. And it was a lot of fun. Of course, they're great cats. And uh, Lou, yeah, Gladys, and John, wonderful, yeah. wonderful. Yeah. And Lou, yeah, of course, of course. Uh, and so, so I, 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 somebody at told me this. I went and checked it, and. Uh, maybe there is a, a deeper connection since you brought up Lou Adler, um, but I, there, there is some connection with you and Rocky Horror Picture Show. Well, you know, I, again, I played on uh, um, the, uh, I played on one of the, um, on what, on, uh, one of the albums. There was like three albums they made. The, yeah, LA the original, cast. yeah. The, so the LA, LA cast, cast album, album is what you played, played on. I okay. played on that, yeah. Okay, but not the movie uh, 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 record, which is now you know uh, indelible in everybody's mind. I That's think, right. Yeah. Is, is that one? But but yeah, that that must have been a lot of fun. Well, sure. You know, it was great. And listen, any, any any chance I got to work with Lou was was great. He's he's one of the greatest ever, and he was very generous with me and with Wad. So both of us yeah. uh, really loved working with him and loved you know being around him. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a lot of what's going to uh, come out of our, our discussion today is the connections. I mean, just how many connections that you guys forged and, you know, how you were able to, um, you know, work with all of these people. Um, you know, Lou Adler's a, a great example. Peter Asher we'll talk about in a bit. So, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, and that led to just, uh, you, you know, you guys becoming in a weird sort of way, you know, now now the immediate family. Uh, you know, three fifths of being the section, which you know was just about on anybody's album of worth uh, out of that came out of L.A. in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. We were very lucky to have played on a lot of terrific albums by a lot of uh, singers, songwriters, great writers, great singers, and we're yeah. lucky to work together a lot. So it's it yeah. a, it a terrific situation, very much a family kind of situation. I'd say. Yeah, yeah, and and now <clears throat> complete, uh, you know, into a, a real uh, working act. Uh, right. That's days. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I I have to ask, of course, you know, uh, about the elephant sitting on all of us uh, right now that's interested in music. You know, as a veteran player who's seen his fair share of uh, craziness, you know, have you ever seen anything like this? And and then, you know, where do we go from here? Well, you know, nobody has seen anything like this. This is completely new, and it's really new to our country, even though we've had pandemics before. We've had, uh, you know, flu pandemics, but uh, this one, it really takes the cake, and it's serious. Um, there's been a spike here in L.A. just because people are starting to go out and get and get um, and interact more. So it's yeah. very serious, and how it affects the music business is we're all having to do different, find different ways. We're making videos. We're doing live streaming concerts. We're going to do one later this month, in fact, uh, and that's going to be the way there's, there's going to be a lot of that. They're also talking about driving concerts. I'm not too crazy about that, but you know, <laughs> they honk their horns instead of applaud. You know, it's not, not the same, is it? But uh, we're all going to have to find ways to survive and to work around whatever's going on. And of course, that's always been the case uh, with music and with musicians. And there was a period of time in the 70s, I thought music was over. I thought video games were going to take over everything. And then really? Was, yeah. Yeah. They, they just they were everywhere. I also mm-hmm. thought when disco came along that it was the end of rock and roll, <laughs> but it wasn't. You know, fortunately, yeah. new wave and punk and and the MTV came back and 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 
resuscitated the interest of, or the, the interest was resuscitated mm-hmm. via those those, uh, those platforms. So it keeps changing all the time. And uh, you have to keep adapting all the time to whatever's going on. Not that I was particularly interested in, you know, I never made disco records. I, I only adapted so much because what I do is what I do. But mm-hmm. I was very fortunate to play with all these great, uh, brilliant performers and singers and songwriters. So that's what, uh, that's the basis of my career then and now. Yeah, yeah. But today, you know, uh, because of, of this, and, and you know, it, it's funny, I mean, when it started here, you know, three, about, about three months ago, um, you know, when, when, when everything got shut down, uh, you know, the first thought was, oh, you know, okay, so we're gonna be out of action for a few months. Mm-hmm. And then it became more obvious that no, um, you, you're probably going to lose most of 2020, if not all of 2020. I think oh, yeah. everybody pretty much has come to the conclusion that, yeah, the rest of this year is off the table. That's and, right. Unless you're, unless you're going to do, and like you said, you know, a, a drive-in uh, is right. close to an mm-hmm. actual live event that I've seen anybody uh, try right. to get off but the ground. I think that until there's a, a very definite vaccine for this stuff that really works, that definitely mm-hmm. works. Yeah, yeah. And even after that, people are going to be hesitant to go out and be around other people because of how, uh, you know, uh, how monumental and how terrifying th- this thing is. Mm-hmm. An awful lot of people are dying, you know. Yeah. And, uh, it, it's, it's definitely, uh, it's got everyone's attention. It's scary. And it's going to be a while before people are ready to go be among other people, I think. Yeah, yeah. Even, even with the even with the vaccine, even with the vaccine, uh, and and you know what that that leads me to begin to question is, um, you know, where the, the next generation of of musicians and uh, mm-hmm. uh, and and how this is will permanently change, you know, the music industry, and and it's not just the musicians; it's you know, it's all the people that are responsible for putting this stuff on. It's the venues themselves. I, I read an article yesterday that we could lose up to ninety percent of the independent music venues uh, because of this. Well, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case. A lot of the venues uh, are now going to, to streaming, and they're set mm-hmm. up. They have, they have cameras set up, camera crews set up and ready to go, and bands come in and screen and 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 uh, live stream their concerts out of there. And that's going to be the, the way it is for a little while, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Keep in mind, there's always these changes. Uh, you remember what happened when? when um, uh, you, you remember what happened with? Um, uh, with, with when streaming first started hitting, when when uh, you know sharing started hit, as opposed to um, and the record companies, they didn't. Adjust. What do you mean Napster? Like Napster? Yeah, first, uh, Napster yeah, st- yeah. started. Where, where basically you were you were eliminating uh, you know recorded music's value. Well, exactly, but the uh, the record companies failed to monetize and find out a way they didn't, didn't get ahead of it. Instead, they were years behind it. Yeah, and so uh, uh, right there, profits from recording dumped heavily. There were so many studios. When, when I worked here in, in the '70s in LA, there was just, there were studios everywhere, beautiful recording studios. Now there's like I don't know, maybe a, a tenth of the studios that existed before because everybody records at home. That's mm-hmm. the other thing. All the technology has enabled people to make full, huge sounding records at home. And yeah, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. Billie Eilish uh, comes to mind. Uh, that's you know, right. Grammy winning, uh, you know, record of the year was yeah. made in her brother's basement or right. her bedroom. That's right. Well, he's very talented, and, and they're both very talented, and, yeah. and uh, that record sounds great, proving my point. The thing that it doesn't have, though, is the sound of a live band. Right. And for that, you need to get guys together in the studio, and we hear that less and less now, which is, I think is a shame. You know, Our band, Immediate Family, we record live, but we're, we're old school. You know? Yeah. That's yeah. the way we came up. 
Well, you know, that that, um, that brings me to a, a, another question about that, how, you know, there, there was this these groups of, of musicians that maybe weren't known at the time, like the Wrecking Crew, uh, the Funk Brothers, the Swampers, uh, you know, the the A-Team, uh, and, and yourselves, the Section, or and then what became Toto. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it, it must be nice at least you know, now getting that sort of, of recognition. And, you know, you, you've kind of been a little bit more known than, than some of the other guys, uh, other than, you know, let's face it, uh, you know, uh, you're probably the, the, the third uh, a recognized member of the, the immediate family. Uh, you know, Leland's uh, beard, uh, you know, other than ZZ Top is, uh, you know, rock and roll. Uh, All right, well, you're right. They have better hair than me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and Waddy, of course, uh, you know, he looks exactly the same as he did in 1970, for Christ's sake. Yes. <laughs> Leland is world famous, you know, he's got, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, he's, he's the, certainly the most highly recognized, kind of biggest star in the band, for sure. Yeah, he he in 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 a, in a weird sort of way. Even though you're the front man, uh, well, you know, I'm not, I don't consider there. myself the front man. I'm I'm on I'm on the front line. I'm in the middle. Yeah, but, uh, you're I, in the middle. You're in I the middle. That that says something. <laughs> I don't consider myself the front man at all. But, uh, yeah, you know, uh, 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 the first among equals, right? Uh, in any way you want. <laughs> but uh, you know, we have a very very democratic situation going with that band. Yeah, we all yeah. sing, we all play, and mm -hmm. we all get equal time. So yeah. it's not, I don't think there's one of us that could, say, could yeah. be said to be the front man. Yeah. But uh, more, more to my point is that, you know, why don't we have, uh, you know, guys like yourselves, uh, you know, the, the, where is the next generation of the Funk Brothers is, is, is my question. Yeah, well, that stuff will happen in the studio. Now, maybe, maybe it'll come around again. I don't, I don't know. Like I said, most people make their records at home now. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, unfortunately, most of the bands, even bands I dig, I wish they were a real band. For instance, the war on drugs, that's basically one guy. Yeah. Uh, you know, Tame yeah. Impala, that's one guy. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, 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 21 I, Pilots, uh, yeah. two guys. Uh, right. Black Keys, two guys, yeah, yeah. Right, well, Black Keys, they perform as two guys. The, the other bands, the other bands, when they go out on tour, they hire a bunch of sidemen. And I right. get that, but it's not the same as having a sound that's created by an actual rhythm section. You know, Led Zeppelin had to have that uh, the bass player and drummer that they had it would never have sounded it would not be Led Zeppelin yeah <laughs> without Bonzo and Joe were not Bonzo. you couldn't just get another drummer you know to no. I, I think they knew that uh, when 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 uh, Bonham passed I'm that's right that, that's so immediate why they said right. there is no Led Zeppelin but uh, I don't think there's too many bands now where where uh, they're actual bands there are a few and, and I, I I'm big fans of them too I like mm -hmm. the idea I, I also love the idea of bands I think it's great yeah as yeah. for the, the Funk Brothers and the studio bands go, I don't know when that's going to come back. That would be a great thing. That's what, what originally inspired me. I wanted to be Steve Cropper from um, Stax. Booker Bowl. T and the MGs. Yeah. He was my hero. And I yeah. love the idea of sitting in the studio with these unbelievable singers and just playing and playing and playing, playing great songs all day long. How oh, great. So yeah. I love that idea. And of course, we did that to some degree, different kind of music, but to some degree, we did that um, with uh, the section and, and uh, the fellows that we always played with. Yeah, um, but uh, uh, it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same as you know. LA is a big place. In Memphis, there's only a few studios. There's two or three studios. True. Everybody um, knew everyone else. LA is much bigger and more broad, and, and making more pop records than, than uh, specifically soul, soul music or rock and roll. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, but <clears throat> that allowed you guys to do a lot of different things. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, you know, the, the early part of, of your career, uh, at least as a, as a sideman, uh, appears uh, more with the singer-songwriters, uh, you know, the Carol Kings, James Taylors, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in, in, in depth. Um, uh, but then you get into the 80s and you're, you know, <clears throat> you're, you're now, you know, like, uh, playing guitar synth uh, for Don Henley and, right. and, and things like that. So, <clears throat> you, you know, you're, you're, evolution is 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 quite broad um but that that brings me to a a, a a thought that you know the change in composition of you know the the, the either the the piano or 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 the guitar really uh, especially in the late 20th century the guitar is the dominant instrument of, of music right. uh especially the electrified uh guitar and i don't see that being the dominant uh, instrument anymore it's the computer uh and and all that that comes in and and therefore that does kind of take away the need for um other musicians you can emulate uh those other parts uh and while i think you and i would agree that it is um uh less soulful uh by trying to uh do all of this uh you know in a box uh by yourself um, it, it, it does appear to be more efficient. Well, yeah, efficiency is not the same thing as soulful or great or moving or emotional. And that's the problem. And you can, like you said, you can emulate the sound of a guitar, but that's not the same as getting a, having a great guitar player play a great part on your song. And yeah. uh, I don't know if that's even being taught in any of this. I, the only way to learn that is to do it. You know? uh, yeah. The only way to learn to play with other musicians is to play with them. You sit. You can't learn. You can't really. You can only learn so much sitting in your bedroom practicing and doing scales and and learning how to play as fast as humanly possible. That only going to get you so far. It's better, in my opinion, to what I would say to young, younger guitar players is go out in your neighborhood, find a drummer, play, start jamming with them, and then find a mm -hmm. bass player and the three of you jam together. Play with other people. That's how you grow and how you learn. Even if they're not that good, hey, you're not that good. <laughs> <laughs> right. We all start off not that good. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. So. Um, you know, but I'm not sure how much that happens. You can't replace people. And I don't care how great you are at programming. There's only so much you can do uh, on, uh, in the box. And uh, uh, there's people that are very creative with it. You just named um, uh, Finn, who does yeah. um, Billy Eilish's stuff. And there's other guys that are creative with it. But yeah, yeah. Uh, that's only one side. That's only one, one aspect of making music. And mm -hmm. the other part is using live musicians, maybe along with what you do at home. I'm not sure. And all kind of ways of doing stuff, but I'll tell you this: uh, and Phineas, he can play guitar and piano. I mean, he's not just a, a button pusher. A computer program, right? Right. He's he's also a musician. A lot of these yeah. guys are. So mm -hmm. that's the point: is you what you want ultimately is musicianship, soul. Uh, you want people that really care about what they're doing, and uh, uh, more than just beats. You know, that's the thing. At this point, beats have become more popular than songs to a large degree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we would both agree that, uh, you know, over the course of your career, you know, we've seen melody, uh, you know, take a dip and rhythm uh, rise uh, as the dominant piece of, of music, uh, right. you know, hence where, you know, it, it's all about the beat track uh, yeah. that everything starts with. Um, right. But, you know, isn't, isn't, uh, you know, songwriting isn't the whole point trying to be making an emotional connection and, mm -hmm. and that, therefore that's people i mean right i mean that's your point well that is yeah that is the, that is the whole point that is the whole point it's exactly that you know um if you go to a taylor swift concert for instance the whole audience sings along with every song 
Yeah, she actually is uh, pretty close to, you know, emulating the, the old ways of, right. you know, as a singer songwriter herself, mm -hmm. uh, you know, good or bad definitely has improved over the years. Uh, and she goes out there as, as, a, as a band, as, as a live act. Right. Well, what she does, it's not really my cup of tea, but I appreciate yeah, that, yeah. that people love it and people love it enough to learn every word of her songs. And that says a lot. Yeah. If you go to a James Taylor concert, that audience, which is, of course, much older, they know yeah. every, every song, every mm -hmm. word to every song. So I get yeah. it. That's yeah. And anytime music reaches into people and, and gets them going, you can't disagree with that, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. um, uh, uh, I know you guys were in the middle of filming a documentary on the um, right. project uh, with Russ Uncle, Leland Scalar, Waddy Wachtel, and uh, Steve Postel. And all of that's on hold, like like many things. Um, but you were able to release a new song, just came out, mm -hmm. uh, Cruel Twist. So at least something is happening musically for you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Um, like I said, we're, I'm constantly writing, constantly playing, constantly mm -hmm. developing new, new stuff. We have an album that's com coming out in the fall of all original material, yeah. all, new, all new stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're, and I have, you know, three or four tunes going for the next album, which of course, God mm -hmm. knows when I get to that. But uh, <laughs> so we're still, you know, I always do the same thing. I always play. I'm always trying to write songs. I always come up with ideas. And always do you have a routine? Do you, do you like no, wake up at seven really. in the morning and no, sit down and practice scales? Or <laughs> no, There's no routine. It's just when the muse strikes. That, that's it. But I do try to play. I, I play the guitar every day. And if I got... I'm not really interested in writing a song. I'll just do finger exercises and scales just to keep mm -hmm. my hands moving so that uh, I'll be ready, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So you have the new song that just dropped, Cruel Twist. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, how'd you guys uh, come up with the song? And, uh, you know, is this indicative of uh, what we're going to hear on the, the upcoming album? Well, Cruel Twist is kind of an older song. I wrote that years ago when I was living in New York, uh, living in the East Coast. Uh, I just moved there with my family. And... Um, Started a little band there with a pal of mine, a guy named Charlie Carp, who's a really fine uh, blues guitar player, and uh, Harvey Brooks, the great Harvey Brooks, who happened to live in Connecticut, where I had moved. And so we were fooling around together, and, and Harvey came up with the title, Cruel Twist. I said, oh, that's great. So I wrote the music right after that, and, and most of the words uh, mm -hmm. right away. And I've since then changed the words a little bit and altered them. But it's an older tune. It's a blues tune. It's a rock and roll blues kind of tune. Here's a quick word from our sponsors. We'll be back in a bit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And now back to the program. Yeah, yeah. It it, it struck me as, uh, you know, God, I could almost hear uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan playing uh, on it with you guys. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sort of thing. So yeah. lots yeah. of fun. So is, is, the, is, is that indicative of what we're going to hear on the album, or is it just one piece or an outlier, or what do you think? Well, that thing's a little bluesier than the other stuff that's on the it album. Is. Okay. Um, yeah. But it's all rock and roll. It's all big, yeah. big rock and roll. Even the ballads are rock and yeah. roll. Yeah, because yeah, you guys can do just about anything. I mean, <clears throat> you know, listen to the old original section albums, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, very, um, uh, you know, jazz fusion uh, type of stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, and, of course, you know, you go through your body of work and, you know, you could pick mm-hmm. out anything. Uh, uh, so, so it is a little bit more, uh, you know, classic rock and roll is what you're saying. Uh-huh. Yeah, oh. I, but yeah, again, yeah, well, I don't know about the term click, I guess, you know, it's hard for me to, to uh, uh, actually um, explain exactly what it is or define it because, but it is rock and roll, let me put it that yeah. way. And it's yeah. about songwriting. We're, we, you know, we focus on, on, on the songs. It's a major part of what we do. We don't have long, long extended solos, uh, for instance, uh, you know, our ideas are more song oriented. Right, right. Right, right, right. Um, okay, so let's get to the beginning. Um, how did music grab you and never let go? Well, you know, that's uh, when I was uh, when I was growing up, and that's eight or nine or ten years old, right around there. As the rock and roll started to come on the radio. In fact, yeah. you, know, you grew up in, in New York. Did you grow up in the village? Is that is that what I read? No, no. Um, I was born in New York City. My family moved to the suburbs, and then I moved back to New York as soon as I could, okay. uh, back to the city. But mm-hmm. um, when uh, when rock and roll started to come out, uh, started to come on the radio on AM radio, and um, in 1952, whenever it was, the first generation. When yeah. I heard Elvis Presley and Little Rich, I just lit up like a Christmas tree. It's, uh-huh. It really spoke to me and everyone else. I mean, it was irresistible. I found it absolutely irresistible. And then I started listening to lots of blues. Uh, There's all kind of great music happening when I was growing. I was very lucky. Uh, jazz was jazz was incredibly great. So so innovative and so wonderful stuff in that uh, field. Folk music even was uh, had great stuff going on. I'm not a big folkster, but there was a lot of great folk music happening at that point. Um, and then rock and roll, blues, all of it was surging. Uh, me and my buddies used to go to uh, New York City and we'd go see everybody. Just walk into, I walked into a club with my friends as a teenager, and there's the John Coltrane Quartet, the original John Coltrane, uh, Coltrane Quartet playing. We just walked in. No line, no tickets, no nothing, you know? Yeah. So we got to see all this amazing music without a big hassle and that, and we got to be able to exposed to all this great stuff. Yeah. So that's when, you know, I started playing guitar when I was around 10 and it took, you know, a long time for me to find those three chords with which you could play all the rock on. As soon as I did again, the heavens parted, you know, uh, and, uh, that, that's when I realized what I got addicted to it right away. Mm-hmm. Was it, was there ever a plan B or did you just say, no, this is, this is it. This is never a plan B. I was going to do it, and that's it. No turning back. Nothing else. No. Really? From from exactly like right. 
you just said, uh-uh, this is it. This is my vocation. This is my calling. And uh, that's right. Well, I, you know, it's either this or the skids. Right, right out of high school, my father forced me to get a job. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I finally got one in a mailroom of a, uh, an advertising agency. And I hated it so much that after three or four months, I quit, started a rock and roll band and never looked back. That was it. But it was that three or four months as, as uh, in, in the mailroom that convinced me that I was never going never gonna to work in an office, never going to have a straight job later for that. I had to yeah. play music. And it, it, yeah. it um, certainly motivated me to get going much quicker than maybe I would have. Huh. Well, uh, it seemed to have worked out pretty good for you uh, yeah. uh, over the decades here. Sure so, so you're in New York City, and uh, uh, you, 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 like, like you just said, there's no Plan B. You start a rock and roll band, um, and then there, there are two bands I, I, I want to talk about. That, that I, I guess one of them is right out of New York City, which was the Fugs. Uh -huh, that's right. You you ended up in one of the iterations of that, which is kind of an unusual underground uh, band that maybe doesn't get as much recognition as, say, like the Velvet Underground did. Well, you know, the Velvet Underground at least were musicians. The Fugs were basically <laughs> poets and writers from the, from uh, the Lower East Side, and they were very funny and hilarious. But you know, they had, uh, Ed Sanders owned a bookstore, and he was a uh, an Egyptologist, and uh, that's kind of where they're coming from. But they wanted to start a band because you know what? Everyone was starting bands. That was the yeah. deal. Yeah, yeah. Once the Beatles hit uh, Ed Sullivan, uh, you know, uh, we 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 did a thing with uh, Zildjian symbols, uh, and one of the mind explosion uh, bits of information that I got was uh, when when I was working on that was that uh, within three weeks of the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, they had a fifteen-year back order that they had. <laughs> That well, just shows yeah. you just how many people just overnight decided, right. oh, I, I, well, if those guys can do that, I guess I can do that, right? Well, you know, uh, it just was so attractive and, and so magnetic and so, and it looked like so much fun. And also the girls loved it. So another major reason to get into it. <laughs> and this yeah. happened to the, to the folkies in Greenwich Village. They started, all the folkies started picking up electric guitars and, and learning how to play, uh, you know, rock and roll with the, with the rhythm section. Well, yeah, Bob, yeah. Bob Bob Dylan got uh, uh, yelled at and screamed at and, and spit on for doing that. Didn't stop him, did it? <laughs> no, it didn't. Did it? <laughs> yeah, he still prefers the electric guitar these days. Uh, well, he's I great on both. See him yeah. I haven't seen him in a long time, but he goes out and plays yeah. an acoustic set, probably, and that's great. And yeah. then he plays with the band. He always has good bands, and he started no, yeah. off with with uh, Levon and the Hawks, which became the band. They were great. Yep. Yeah. So uh, he's he's been playing with you know he had Mike Bloomfield with him for a while which yeah. was fantastic. Yeah. So uh, yeah. you know it, it wasn't. I just, think you, I think your old buddy Charlie Sexton has uh, been with him for a long time now. Charlie's is kind of on and off with with uh, with Bob. He plays yeah. with him. He doesn't play with him. He goes back to Austin, I guess. Uh, Charlie's mm -hmm. a terrific player though, and a, and a terrific artist too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the, the other band that I, I wanted to bring up in this early uh, days was the Attitudes. And that's uh -huh. the thing. You, you've been in just so like there's there's the section, there's solo, there's all these folks. And, you know, uh, you, you're the third of the of the group that I've gotten the chance to talk to. And yeah. when I go back to do the research, it's, you know, for example, I, I think the Fugs, um, if I remember right. Yeah, that, no, I'm sorry. It was the Flying Machine yeah. with James Taylor was produced by Chip Taylor. Um, you know, who I've gotten to speak with as well. And, you know, with Chips, I can look at Chips things and kind of figure out his story. You guys, man, it's, it, 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 there's, it goes left, it goes right, it goes under, it goes above. It's, it's, it's just, 
it's just so huge. The closest is um, I, I got to speak to um, 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 uh, oh gosh darn it I'm I'm having a brain fart. Uh, the the drummer from the Wrecking Crew. Um, um, Hal Blaine. Hal, I got to speak to Hal. And, uh, you know, going through his CV is almost impossible. Oh, uh, you know, it's just, it's just crazy that you guys were just, I, I guess in a lot of ways, it's just right place at right time. Uh, and then, you know, that. working uh, hard and, you know, to your point, uh, you know, no plan B, this was it. And, uh, you know, just being there working on and on. So, but with the attitudes, you're working with David Foster. Uh, and of course you're cheating with, uh, well, with Russ because uh, Jim uh, Keltner, I believe is uh, playing drums in that band as well. Yeah, that's right. And that's yeah. a weird, weird sort of, like I listened to a couple of the tunes. I never, never was familiar with them. And it, that's uh, again, out in left field, but, you know, how, how, do you, how do you, I guess, how do you become such a chameleon? Well, I don't know about that. I never thought about it that way. You know, uh, with the attitudes, a lot of it's funk and, and uh, soul music oriented, which I always right. love. And, and mm -hmm. I was playing that for years in my first band, the King Bees. So uh, I was just, I don't know. I, I had a lot of interests. I, and I had a lot of different stuff I wanted to play. For instance, I love Booker T and the MGs, but I also love the Birds. And I was mm -hmm. loved their sound. I thought it was great. So uh, why not, you know? And of course, the Beatles, the Stones, absolutely. There was just so much great stuff going on. And uh, I would try to learn a little bit from, from all of it, you know, and, and bring what I had to the fore, as it were. Mm -hmm. uh, so it really, I never thought about it as any, any other way than just following my nose and doing what, you know, just doing what felt right and sounded right. It sounds to me that you're not um, committed to a very particular type of sound or or a, a genre or or anything like that. You, you're you're you, you know you, you mentioned uh, you know uh, one of the guys in the Fugs being an Egyptologist. So mm -hmm. you so you're more like an archaeologist. You're 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 literally just digging and saying, hmm, what are these guys doing over here? Oh, that's really interesting. Well, I guess you know that's kind of. <laughs> You know, I would never describe myself as, you know, as being like an archaeologist. I'm, you know, I'm an animal, you know, but, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I absorb all kinds of different music. Well, everyone I know is like that. All the other cats I know are like that. Everyone's interested in a lot of different kinds of music. And, uh, mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. the other part of it is that I know a lot about American music. I mean, going all the way back. And uh, I've been exposed to great music, you know, my whole life. And I know mm -hmm. a lot about it. I'm interested mm -hmm. in it, you know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I realized Led Zeppelin did not invent rock and roll in 1971. You know? No, no. Uh, and, you know, there's musicians who think yeah. they did. White, white people didn't invent rock and roll. Uh, exactly yeah. true. Yeah. 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 But, to, you know, on, on the other hand, the original rock and roll, there was plenty of white people in it, too. It had to cross between this kind of rockabilly country thing. Like yeah. Gene, Gene Vincent, Eddie Cochran and you yep. know, Jerry, Jerry Lee and the hardcore blues, Pat Domino, Little Richard and that and gospel music mixed in there. That's yep. what made it so wonderful and so intriguing and, and so great and so dangerous. That was the original revolution was it was white people and black people getting together. That was the, exactly, exactly. And, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I guess, you know, we have to talk about uh, the events of the last few weeks because we are still dealing with the exact same situation that we were dealing with in the 1950s. Uh, and, and, and if I could turn it to the positive, because a lot of people want to make it negative, you know, the reality is what I saw out on the streets was not black kids. It was a lot of white kids yeah. with black kids. And right. just, it, 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 it was not, it, it was what the expectation was supposed to be right. that 
and I just, for the life of me, I still cannot understand why that idea is so dangerous. Uh, what idea are you speaking of? The idea of, of, of uh, black well, kids and white kids getting together. Oh, <laughs> well, you know, hey, listen, there's always been prejudice in this country. It is, we're still fighting yeah. a civil war, really. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a cold civil war, but it's a civil war nonetheless. And you got to remember, I mean, not to get too philosophical or whatever, but uh, uh, there is the fear of the other that's built into all of us, in my opinion. And that's mm. it's built into animals too. the fear and mistrust of the other of that. Yeah, the tribalness of things. yeah of, of mm. people that don't look like you don't speak like you. There is a, a built in tendency to fear and mistrust the other. Mm. And yeah. uh, that's a very strong component in people that I think and that mm -hmm. we still have we still have only gotten so far away from. I think every generation, each generation gets closer and closer to the recognition that we're basically just people, you know, and that's why we're seeing this, uh, which I'm thrilled to see. Uh, uh, that this real great coalition of, of people, especially young people out on the street, uh, marching for something that's really important. You know, that's really important. Uh, you know, most police, my daughter's a police police officer. And, oh, uh, really? Yeah, so I'm I'm not a hater. I'm never, it was one of these people nope. that lump all police together. No. I, I, you know, one thing I know in life, you can't, don't bother to lump people together. I didn't like it when people lumped me into the Woodstock generation. You know, I mean, I didn't go to, I wouldn't be called dead or Woodstock. You know, I was never a hippie, you know, don't, don't talk to me like that, you know, but so that, that's my point is that you can't lump all people together. Uh, and, uh, but I think there definitely has to, you know, the thing about police brutality, it's gotta be acknowledged. It's gotta be recognized and it's gotta be changed. In my experience, and I'll get off this, but in my experience uh, during the Viet, you know, Vietnam war, the way that war was ended was by people in the streets. I marched on yeah. one of those things. There's half a million people in the, in the street marching against the war. You can't ignore that. Now. Yeah. I, I don't care who you are. You can't ignore mm -hmm. them. And mm -hmm. uh, I think we're seeing something similar now uh, with police brutality. And well, that is the beauty. Of... It's inequality. Yeah. It's overall inequality. Well, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, uh, a lot of people are, are questioning, um, uh, you know, the defund the police. And, and I've had to uh, uh, try to... Um, explain to some folks that, it, that it's it's a bad slogan because the, Terrible, the point yeah. the point is not to to eliminate the police. The the problem is that we have asked them to do a bunch of stuff that they're not qualified to do Correct. because we defunded a bunch of other things and said it's now your responsibility. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. I think that that's so true. I also think that part of defunding, whatever, you know, that's a terrible uh, slogan. Like yeah, said. we, we got to change that. I, uh, it's, I think it's up for us to, to, to change that. I think it's important also probably to demilitarize the police. Right. They don't right. need tanks. They don't need armored cars. They don't need bazookas. They don't need anti-tank weapons. You know, come on. They don't need this And, stuff. and if you and do, just, there's a bigger fucking problem we got to deal with. Exactly right. Yeah. So yeah. I think that if that's what they mean by defund, then I'm in favor of that. But the phrase is terrible and people are going to misinterpret it and yeah. And, uh, uh, use it against uh, the 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 original concept, right? Uh, which is bad. I mean, you know, we we don't want to to see that. There is a moment, I believe, we we have entered a a, a new moment that does strike uh, a chord similar to say sixty eight, sixty nine, seventy, right, uh, right there. And uh, you know, I hope it maintains its momentum, even though we're asking it to do so in the most difficult of conditions because of the pandemic. Uh, a lot of these people are literally putting their lives at risk by, exactly right. by engaging in this. Uh, yes. But 
you know, we have to make change. And I, and I think that, uh, that that is obvious. You know, to go back to a, an earlier point that you met, uh, meant about, you know, tribalism and, 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 and the fact that, that, you know, we live in this world where, you know, that's fear, a fear of the unknown, of, of, of who that unknown is. Right. But we don't really live in that world anymore. I mean, you can get on the internet and talk to somebody, you know, from around the world uh, and get to know them as a person. And you find that, wow, they have the exact same dreams and desires and concerns that you do. True. Mm -hmm. So why, you know, why do we still have this, this, uh, this issue? Um, because they uh, also, there's a lot of people that have the same fears and same prejudices that I don't. And right. There's tons of those too. And they find each other. And what we get is again, this separation, this polarization and, uh, um, you know, well, also we don't have a, a, a federal government that, that espouses togetherness and that tries to keep us all on the same page and, and talks about what we have in common. We have As opposed a, a, to, yeah, yeah, dividing. And then we right. have a, a situation where that is more divisive. Than yeah, yeah, it really is. Well, we could go on that all day, but I'm going to yeah. flip the, the script here. And, you know, of all the immediate family guys, it seems you kind of came the closest to achieving a real solo career. You have a couple of album releases. The first is Cooch in 1973, which sounds as if uh, it would fit nicely with the with the section. And I think you were doing the section album around the same time. Yeah, I was. That's right. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and then in 1980, you do something very different, uh, uh, which is innuendo. So I guess the question is, <clears throat> why the evolution and why seven years between the two solo albums? Well, you know, I, it would, I'd be really foolish to try to compare myself to the great Neil Young. But Neil follows his own <laughs> course. Whatever he likes at the moment, that's what he does. He made a rockabilly album. He made an yeah. album with, with a uh, vocoder. Yeah. Uh, uh, I've actually Trans, yeah. You, you yeah. worked with him on uh, a mid '80s album. That's right. Uh, I co-produced yeah. an album of his, "Landing on Water," which is, after, right. by the way, a terrific album. It didn't mm -hmm. get the respect or the uh, recognition it should have gotten. It's really, really good. And that's that's a different kind of music. We used this a, uh, a synclavier on that, but we also played live to it. Um, mm. So it was part synclavier and part live. Then he did something else. Then he gets his acoustic guitar on. He does an album of that kind of stuff. He's going whatever. He's following his nose. Whatever he feels like doing at that time that's what he does and he, and he finds it and I, I think a lot of us are like that i'm like that but you know, not again not to put myself on the same level as neil young but i was interested in new wave when it came out and uh, in, in synths and, and and in rock and beats and stuff like that so that's why i did that in yeah you definitely hear you hear that in innuendo right. i liked it, it you know when that stuff started to come out and started of, yeah. and started to be everywhere i, I dug it I, I dug a lot of it i thought it was fun mm -hmm. and interesting i love the mm -hmm. clash and i love the sex pistols and I also love some of the synth groups, some of the synth music that was coming out. You know, Thomas Dolby, fantastic. Uh, oh, yeah. And, you know, how can you not dig that stuff? It's, it's fun and cool. Devo, they're all great, you know. Yeah. So yeah. I can't just do one thing. I can't say Led Zeppelin or nothing else. I can't, <laughs> I'm just not that kind of person, you know. I, yeah. Uh, there's too much to dig. There's too much stuff mm -hmm. to dig. Mm -hmm. But also, in the 80s, see, the transition really was not so much to become a solo artist. It was because I was lucky to be hired by Don Henley to uh, produce his albums with him and I produced and co-wrote three albums with him. And that's what uh, my main, that's mainly what I did in the eighties. Cause those albums took a long time. He <laughs> that down. Yeah. So, so let's, let's get into that because that, that is uh, just, uh, you know, I mean, you have uh, uh, the end of the innocence in 89, you have building the perfect beast in the, uh, I think 85, 
uh, and uh, and even the first one uh, mm -hmm. you uh, you worked on, which uh, I should know right off the top of my head, which is I can't stand still. Right. Uh, and uh, so so uh, how did that come about? I, I, I'm sure you must have known Don from the '70s scene uh, out there, uh, you know, with the Eagles being as big as the Eagles uh, were. Things well, uh, everybody knew everybody uh, back yeah. in the '70s. We were all pals. Everybody knew everybody. We, you know. I knew the Eagles and Jackson and everybody knew everybody and everybody was hanging out together. It was, you know, very, it was a great scene, in fact. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then the Eagles Center, Centered up. around Doug Weston's uh, Troubadour, right? To some degree, yes. Uh -huh. yeah. But, you know, we also, we all hung out at each other's cribs. We played on each other's records. We wrote songs together. It was a, a, a wide-ranging group of, of, of cats. And we had a great time together. Um, mm. So the way that you're asking me how uh, it came about that I uh, worked with Don. Yeah. All right, well... They, the, the Eagles had broken up, as you know. Um, yeah. Glenn made a solo album called No Fun Allowed. Which you worked on as well. Which I played on, yeah. Yeah. So uh, at that point, I guess Don felt pressured to make a solo album himself. And he started talking to everybody, started getting people, having people come up to his crib to, uh, uh, to talk to him and maybe play a little bit and fool around with some ideas. So at one point, of course, the phone rang and, you know, I was one of the people that got, that uh, went up there. To hang mm -hmm. out with Don and listen to music. After we, uh, I played, I played him some ideas and stuff. He says, "Well, you want to work on my solo album?" I said, "Absolutely!" And away we went. So he knew you were the guy right away, even though he talked to a lot of people. Well, I sure knew he was the guy. He is a phenomenally <laughs> talented, great singer, very what a guy. what a lyricist. Yeah, I mean, really brilliant, brilliant lyricist, great. Yeah. So uh, I guess he he felt I was the guy. I, I was, I had some fresh ideas, you know, and and uh, I couldn't wait to collaborate with him. And and we often running, you know, we just uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and you know, of the three albums, you know, building the perfect beast is kind of you know the the crown jewel. I think uh, so. Too. Yeah, you know, a, a lot of people point to Edge of the Innocence, and and you know, right there, right there, but. You know, Sunset Grill. Um, uh, all she wants to do is dance, right. uh, and and I believe you're actually the writer of uh, All She Wants to Do Is Dance. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's talk about that song. Um, I I think the first thing I, I want to ask is that in a weird sort of way, we we kind of are living in that world of, you know, the of a, a almost a, a third world um, here in America. Even though the the point of it is that it's it's like a Latin American scene, but it's it has come home, wouldn't you say? Yeah, more or less, more or less. Of course, I didn't write it with that in mind, but uh, no, no, no. You know, it turns out that uh, there is some resonance now with that song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what was the inspiration at at that? I I I would assume you probably spent more on the on the uh, the music and and Don on the lyrics, or was this a fully realized idea from you? All right, this this song, all she wants to do is dance. I wrote the music and the lyrics to. You did. Yeah, so that's just my that's my song. That's one song yeah. that that I didn't collaborate with Don on, but when he played it for him, he dug it, and we started recording it right away. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the way I came up with it was uh, we had one, like I said, one of or the first DX7, uh -huh. Yamaha DX7s, and it had one of the sounds on it was a sample and old sound. That. So uh -huh. I slowed it way down. Ran it through in a fuzz tone, you know, distorted, and that's what you hear. That's the sound you hear. So once I had that going, I went, "Oh, this is groovy." Right. I went, I went to sleep, and I woke up the next day and wrote the lyrics out in about ten minutes. And uh, really, I had—I I don't know what I was writing about. I, you know, in other words, that was 
I didn't think about it too much, but in retrospect, it's got a little uh, Tom and Daisy Buchanan in there, um, you know, from Great Gatsby, these rich people that don't care about anything. It's right. got some Graham Greene in there, the ugly American kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I didn't really think about that at the time. I had the hook, all she wants to do is dance, and I just worked backwards from that. And, right. Uh, there it was. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, uh, you get to perform in the video. Uh, <clears throat> we'll talk a little bit about you. You get a lot of video time, uh, here, uh, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, you're, you're definitely the leader of the, the band in the uh, third world nation that shall be, re- uh, remain nameless, uh, as uh, fire and, uh, blood is, uh, spilled yeah. around you guys. Uh, it, it all fits in the motif of the song, huh? Well, yeah, it was a burnt out disco set that they created. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That must have been a lot of fun. Sure was fun. So, um, uh, but now we've got we've gone too far. I got to reel reel back a a little bit because um, uh, you know, this all kind of starts with James Taylor. Uh, yeah. You you and actually you and James know each other the longest. Uh, and uh, you actually I think met when you were kids, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. How did that come about? Well, we were like 13 or 14 or something around that age. And uh, both our families were going up to Martha's Vineyard uh, for the summer. Mm-hmm. And of course, back then, it's a long time ago. Back then, you could afford to go to Martha's Vineyard for the summer. Um, <laughs> right. It was basically a middle-class vacation spot, kind of, you know. My parents went there for the first time because of the cheap. it was so cheap to rent a house there. And you'd mm-hmm. go to the beaches, and it was lovely. Now, of course, it's for zillionaires only, pretty much. Um, but at the time, so there I was hanging out in front of a the little grocery store down there in, in Menefsha, Massachusetts, Menefsha, just a little fishing, charming little fishing village. And James happened to be there too. And we're hanging out. We started talking to each other and uh, just started hanging out the way people do, you know? So we started hitchhiking around the island looking for girls and, uh, and we became kind of became pals uh, at that point. And then we realized we had, you know, we both love music and we we're both really into it and that, and a friendship, our friendship evolved and certainly our music, musical uh, uh, collaboration uh, and, and uh, relationship evolved as well. And uh, we're, yeah. still, we're still very good pals. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you're, you're, you're going on 60 years as, uh, as friends uh, out yes. there. <clears throat> and, uh, uh, and then, so you guys start a band together. Right. Uh, I think this is after the Fugs, uh, if I remember. Yeah, right. it, uh, it's actually, no, it's before the no, Fugs. No, it's right before the Fugs. You're right, you're right, you're right. Uh, and um, uh, and you work with Chip Taylor uh, on uh, the original Flying Machine. Well, we made, we had one day in the studio. Mm-hmm. With one Taylor. day. Yeah, yeah. One day, yeah. in which he recorded all that stuff. And most of it is not very good. And uh, we didn't have time to refine it. Neither, neither James or I are very happy about it. The album because they put it out years yeah. later. Nobody talked uh, about once James it. became famous, yeah. right? Right. No. Yeah. After he became famous, they stuck. They just slapped this thing together of mm-hmm. outtakes and and bullshit, and they and they stuck it out there. Neither James or I were happy with it. No one asked us. If it was okay with us. We didn't have time when we were in the studio to make something great. Mm-hmm. One day in the studio, so we mm-hmm. weren't happy with that at all. And uh, you know, our, our relationship with uh, with with uh, Chip Taylor was was brief. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, uh, the the record didn't go anywhere. Uh, the band broke up, and uh, you know, is that when you head out to L.A.? Well, right after that, that's when I joined the Fugs. The Fugs were always looking for musicians to back them up. They had a we're playing in a theater. I think it's called the McDougal Theater, um, 
Um, yeah, it's one of those bands country. where there's a million people that have come since, in and out of that. Yeah, since they weren't really musicians, they would hire guys. And there was a ton mm -hmm. of guys on the street, tons of musicians on the street. I actually mm -hmm. knew all the fellas that they had hired. And uh, it looked like fun because I knew them all. So mm -hmm. I joined up for a while with that. But the Fugs was more of a theatrical thing and a literary thing than it was a, and a spectacle thing rather than a musical thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was, it was fun for a minute, but I, you know, it was certainly not the end of the road for me. It, it wasn't musically satisfying. No, but they, they paid, well, they paid $100 a week. That was wow. a fuck ton of money. <laughs> like that. You can do anything you want for, for that. Go, right, you know. right, 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 right. So still worthy of your time, uh, but, uh, but maybe not um, uh, filling your soul. No, I mean, like I said, they were fun guys. They were very bright. Ed Sanders is a very, yeah. very bright guy. And I, yeah. I had a lot of respect for him and affection for him. But uh, mm -hmm. I didn't see any future for me. So I wanted to play real music. But I, what I consider, yeah. like, you know, uh, uh, you know, real rock and roll band music. Oh, at that time, I mean, just every week you have some, you know, what is now a legendary album coming right. out. Exactly. Uh, You're you know, exactly right. Uh, you know, Sgt. Pepper's, uh, you know, being the most famous, but, you know, there's Tommy there. I mean, I could go on and on. And and, mm -hmm. and, and that is the weird thing about uh, then and today is, you know, you just, you know, I, I, it's so uh, ephemeral uh, uh, these days. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, something comes out and, and you're lucky if you get a day of notoriety and then it's replaced by something else well you know i i don't like to be one of these old fogies but i am of an old fogey. <laughs> an old fogey. <laughs> but I, I have to agree with tom petty who said uh, in an interview he said um, you know everyone thinks that the music they grew up with the music they that they were listening to when they grew up was was the best music he says in my case it I, that was true <laughs> and, and I agree with him. If you look at the charts in 1968, you look at the albums that are coming out, 1968 through 1972, for instance, that brilliant album after brilliant album, really great stuff. That is not the case now. I'm sorry. A lot of it sounds very much the same. And I don't know about you. I get tired of listening to songs that are basically a one four-bar loop over and over and over and over and over again. And then somebody does all their vocal melisma on top of it. To me, this is mm -hmm. a recipe for stunning boredom and, and, and non-creativity. Yeah, musical masturbation, we may say. No, you could say that. To me, it's just, <laughs> I don't hear it. I wish there were, there are, there always, there are and always will be talented people making music. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, that, I, we, we talked about Billie Eilish and, and, and Phineas, uh, you know, as being <clears throat> that, uh, you know, uh, yes, there are plenty of talented people mm -hmm. uh, today. Um, the, the issue is that they don't, you know, uh, well, to go back, uh, I, I think, you know, you, came up and uh at a very special time in in music you're exactly um, right it, it, that that probably hasn't been seen since like the baroque period of yeah. classical music i i think this is gonna wane and we won't see musicians thought of you know as you know what, what are called rock stars or rock gods mm -hmm. you know in, in this this high level of uh of atmosphere uh that existed you know led zeppelin being probably the the pinnacle of you know achieving this you know global fame maybe the beatles um uh that fit in that although they quit touring in 66 um you know that that just were treated uh, you know uh, you know, like Greek gods, really, uh, you know, and you got to touch a, a little of that yourself. And we just don't live in that world anymore. No, it's changed. And that's the one thing, it, it is going to change. One thing about mm -hmm. um, uh, American music, popular music and popular culture generally is it's like a pendulum that swings back and forth 
from highbrow to lowbrow to to great to not so great. And it's always changing. Mm-hmm. And our mm-hmm. culture is like that. It always changes. It's constantly evolving into whatever it's going to be next. Uh, we saw that period of time. It's not going to come back like that. It'll come no. back in some other way. Sure. Um, the thing, the tro- you know, one of the troubles, one of the problems is that for one thing, it's very hard to get paid playing music or writing music at this point, you know? Yeah. Uh, so that people tend to, young people tend to gravitate towards something and paid for it. And, you mm-hmm. know, so it's only the, the, the diehards, the absolute diehards that stick with it um, in spite of the fact that it's difficult to make a living doing it. Uh, so that, that's one aspect that, that uh, I think a lot of young people go into tech, other, yeah. you know, other, other forms of communication, which are yeah. more interesting and more, more vital at, at the moment. It's well, too bad. Uh, yeah. It's too uh, bad, uh, but like uh, I said, everything keeps changing, you know. Yeah, as as a commentator on 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 uh, you know this, I get asked a lot. You know, well, well, what is the music of the, that 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 you know uh, is the touchstone, the the language of the youth? And I said, it's not music; it's social media. That's that's that's, that's exactly the right. world that 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 those kids live in. Uh, and uh, you know, they're going to create a different world, but music will not be the center. Whereas for you and I, music. And in our generation, the right. music was the center. It, it was how yes, we it. were informed. Music was uh, the driving force of, 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 of American culture at that time. Without a doubt. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. You know, yeah. And, and it isn't now. No. Uh, and now with coronavirus, it really isn't. You know? Right, right. It's, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it literally is, it, it may kill off an old world uh, that you and I don't want to see uh, leave just yet. Um, well, you're but, right, of course. You're right, of course. But uh, there's an awful lot of interest. There's all these documentaries and books and everything coming out about. Oh, them. we're in a golden yeah. age of documentaries. There's a million. You know, I just watched of, Laurel Canyon uh, for the last two nights. Right. That was that's one of them. There's yeah. Echoes in the Canyon, and there's a bunch mm-hmm. of books. You know, a lot of different books being written by people that were in that period of time. So it's mm-hmm. it's highly documented and covered. And there's obviously a tremendous amount of interest in it. You know, still. Yeah. So there's a well, golden age. You know, it because does it, talk. Uh, yeah, a belle epoque. Uh, uh, well, I, it, it, there it was a belle epoque is the thing, uh, and uh, and you know, you know, as World War One destroyed that uh, age, um, you know, uh, it may be uh, coronavirus and the you know the guy running the country who destroys this uh, this age, and you know, and and, and that's those, those things happen. Uh, what I what I take as a as a real positive about it though is that this particular music you know what what we'll call the rock and roll age which is you know uh, it's dominated by American culture mostly American black culture mm-hmm. that is co-opted by by whites uh, mm-hmm. and and turned into a global art phenomenon yeah. in real time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because of technology, uh, mostly, you know, let's face it, TV, radio, uh, uh, you know, the ability to distribute uh, this music globally uh, had never happened before. So it was all right. brand new. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and, and you know, um, you know, it's it's also a reflection of, you know, the fact that America was uh, the dominant culture post-war, you know, mm-hmm. therefore, you know, our our interests uh, just kind of filtered out everywhere uh, that we could. And, That's right. mm-hmm. uh, and at the same time, you know, uh, we were able to reach out to other cultures and grab pieces from to continue to build on that mountain, wouldn't you say? That's the idea. That's yeah, what's, yeah. That's what's supposed to happen. 
Yeah, but that's really difficult today when you do have such a smaller world where, you know, you know, uh, you, you know, um, uh, I'm, I'm sure you would agree with this. You know, Tomorrow Never Knows uh, by the Beatles, uh, you know, some musicologists call it the most important song of the 20th century. And, <laughs> well, it's, it's well great, great there, there's some there's, there's some real change that happens, uh, one of which is a sitar is introduced, you know, and, and I mean. Can you imagine a sitar, you know, exploding people's heads uh, today? Well, yeah, people were hungry for new sounds and different uh, textures, and they were seduced by them. I certainly was, and yeah, uh, they, it, it was beautiful stuff. The yeah. interesting thing is, though, to find, for instance, a Ravi Shankar record, you really had to dig deep to even find that music. Now. Right. All that it, stuff is, yeah. is a couple of clicks away. All of yeah, you can. It's all on their phone. It's all. It's all in your hand. Well, the the entire uh, uh, encyclopedia of human knowledge is in your hand these days. Mm -hmm. So you yeah. can. It, it. You don't have to go and hunt for things. Therefore, it it has less value. I think. I agree uh, with you. Yeah. You I know. Uh, you know, like choosing records. You know, back in the day. I mean, you know, you had fifteen bucks. You know, you. you you got this one or you got that one, even though they were both great, you right. had to make a decision and right. you, were, you were stuck with it. Completely different way of absorbing music and searching for music and absorbing it. And it meant a completely different thing uh, mm -hmm. then because it, was, it wasn't as easy to uh, attain, it wasn't as, uh, as easy to access. You had to really look for it. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is, um, you know, now everything's at your fingertips, but because everything's at your fingertips, it doesn't have the same value because you don't have to search for it as much yeah. as you know you don't have you, you don't have to be to look for it and, and to you know put you know put yourself in there to really find new music it's everywhere there's too yeah. much of it in fact and and that's probably the issue is that it, there's less value to it and therefore you treasure it less and yeah. you're more than willing to let it go to the next thing to, right. to find the next thing and okay, also right. you know I, I think some of that is, you know, it's just, you know, the, the clickbait and, you know, the world that we live in, it's just constantly, I need to, you know, my attention span has been changed from this to this to this little tiny thing now. And, and you, you, we're, we've almost been trained to like, go, okay, that's great. I heard it on to the next thing. You know, mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, um, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, I, I'm going to take us back to, a, to another uh, point of your career here, as opposed to, you know, an album that is indelible to, you know, uh, an entire scene that will be remembered for hundreds of years. And that's Carol King's Tapestry. Right. Well, it just, you know, obviously it keeps getting passed on from generation to generation. You yeah. Know, kids, yeah. kids, uh, their, their parents listen to it. They pick up on it and go, oh, it's good. And. And you know it keeps moving around. You yeah. know we did the, we did this thing the Troubadour reunion tour, which was uh, James and Carol, and uh, Russ Russ Waddy, no, Russ and Leland and myself was the which we were the original band. Yeah. And um, we did it, and it was in the round. We played stadiums, we played you know uh, arenas and stuff. And let me tell you, the people there they were really moved. You could I could see them because they were uh, they were seated right up. The thing was in the round, so you could really see the audience. And yeah. you know. Could see couples clutching each other and tears rolling down their cheek. I mean, you know, that's and you know that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed yeah. to remind you of everything. You know, Cooch, you're yeah. getting me emotional just talking about it. Uh, just imagining yeah. myself in in that uh, yeah. that room. Yeah. Uh, and and to just you know, it's it's like this stuff is akin to Shakespeare. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I do. I know about that. Uh, that that you know, it, it, you know, it's going to take a few hundred years, but people will look back and just go, "Wow, what a moment!" Well, let's hope it hangs around for a while. It's great music. Those albums, you know, uh, mm -hmm. ones I played on, and lots, 
lots and lots I didn't plan are great. And no one's ever been, you know, no, uh, no one's ever made a, an album a whole lot better than Exile on Main Street, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, James's albums are fantastic because he's, mm-hmm. he's great. He's, he just is great, mm-hmm. you know. And, uh, of course, we all Did got Did you ruined. ever think that 13-year-old kid was going to write songs like that? Uh, I, knew he was, I knew he had, I knew he was really, really, really good. Uh, oh. When the first time I heard him sing, I, I flipped. Because oh. I knew what I it was like we were thirteen or something. I yeah. knew what good singing was. I was digging Ray Charles and James right. Brown right. and all that stuff. Right. So when I heard him the first time, I heard him sing. I said, "Oh my God, this guy's got it!" <laughs> you know, mm. whether he was going to be a star or not, I didn't know. I didn't know what a star. You know, he'd be a star. I just knew he, yeah. he was a terrific, terrific singer, and and uh, they had he had major power. You know? Yeah, creative creative power. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So through James, is that what got you to L.A., uh, was through James? Well, I actually joined a band right out of the Fugs called Clear Light, but I was mm-hmm. only with them a very short time. The mm-hmm. guitar player had quit or was fired, and they brought me in to replace him. I only did a few gigs with them, and, and uh, they broke up you know, shortly after that. And that's when uh, I was lucky enough to start working with Carol on something called The City. Yeah. The, the, the oh, a band, people. a band itself. Yeah, it was her first foray into recording as a solo oh, artist. Yeah. She yeah. yeah because she'd been around for at least a decade before oh, as uh, Goffin and King. Oh, great songwriter. I knew yeah. all about her. Oh, yeah. 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 So, so yeah. Tell me about the first time meeting her. Were you a little uh, shaking in your boots? Uh, well, because I, sure, of, I, I certainly was. I knew about Goffin and King and how great they yeah. were. I was a fan because I, yeah. I followed this. I knew all those, all those songwriting teams were. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, you're you're much more an archaeologist than you give yourself credit for. No, I you page, yes, I know a lot about this. I always was very interested in who's yeah. writing, who's playing, mm-hmm. who's doing what. And, yeah. Know, so yeah. to that degree. Well, and let me let me make that point that that you know for those uh, listeners that are diggers that uh, you know are aspiring uh, musicians and you know I I hear that over and over again from you know the guys like yourself that you know have had these long amazing careers that it is digging deep and finding out you know who the the people were or or shelly yakis once said to me if you if you really want to make it in this business find out who your heroes 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 are well that's that- exactly true that's exactly true if you dig led zeppelin you find out who's influenced them which was all the great blues guys chicago blues guys etc yeah. then you find out how they learn you know right because a lot where of did they yeah where did they go yeah. and they, they started with guys on the front porch and you know in, in mm-hmm. mississippi so you got you know all right to me, if you're a, a serious American musician, you should know this stuff. You should yeah. know it. You should know yeah. who influenced would take it as far back as you can take it if you're mm-hmm. interested in American mm-hmm. music, you know. Uh, without doubt. I mean, if, if you want a career uh, of any length, um, you know, that is step one. Is uh, it, it, I mean, wouldn't you do that in, in pretty much any vocation? Well, I think you'd have to really, really care a lot yeah. And, yeah. And, and eat, drink, and breathe it, you know. Right. Right. Uh, so yeah. I'd say that that part of it is true, certainly. Yeah. And it's much easier today. I mean, you know, you and I, we had to go and search for it. We had to go spend time in a library, uh, right. you know, or, or a record store or or beg somebody to give you something that they had that you didn't or make a trade or things like that. I mean, right. uh, as we mm-hmm. said, it's all at the fingertips. But back to meeting Carol uh, King for the first time, because mm-hmm. that, that tapestry 
you know, you playing on that album, it's just such an indelible album of one of many that, uh, that you played on, but uh, it's oh, yeah. just so incredible. And also I think that's early enough in your career that I think that just makes such a huge difference. Uh, sure, absolutely. Afterwards. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Would, you, would you call that like the calling card uh, when, when somebody says, you know, you know, why, why, why did Cooch, you know, uh, get to get to play on all these records as opposed to the next guy? Well, I'll tell you what, um, an awful lot of credit, an awful lot of credit goes to Peter Asher, my dear yeah. friend, Peter Asher, and to Lou Adler. And one mm -hmm. of the reasons why is that uh, uh, in the same, almost the same year, um, I played on Tapestry and also Sweet Baby James. Yeah, because yeah. Peter, Peter, Peter signed uh, um, uh, James to, to Apple, yeah, and that's that what their, got him to L.A., right? Right. That was their first album. That didn't do too well. It didn't so, do well, right. Right. Then uh, Peter moved to Los Angeles because he knew that was the center where everything was going on. Mm -hmm. Got James a deal at Warner Brothers, and we made uh, Sweet Baby James. Sweet Baby James. <laughs> yeah. And the thing about it is, see, like the Wrecking Crew didn't never had their names on their records. You know, the, yeah. you didn't look at the record. There's a whole list of them. No, they were purposely left off. I mean, they right. created bands like the Association to go out and pretend to be the Wrecking Crew. Good. Yeah, you're exactly right. Mm -hmm. So uh, um, Peter and Lou put our names on the records. So here are these huge selling records, and it's also like that. This is a different thing. These are artists that write and sing their own material. Yeah. Uh, and uh, um, it was kind of you know there, there was the term singer songwriter didn't exist, but at the time, but uh, that's kind of what they were. And this was the kind of the launch of that of self-contained artists who wrote and mm -hmm. performed their own material. Yeah. So we were brought in, and like I said, the, the fact that Peter and Lou put our names on those records meant that. You know, other producers, other artists, you know, they, they wanted guys that knew how to play songs and knew how to play these kind of songs rather than Tin Pan Alley and whatnot. So we got, uh, they used to call us for, uh, you know, to, to, you did such a great job on, on Tapestry, you must be good, you know, come and play on my record. Right. So, and that happened with all of us, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, uh, it, it really does kind of cement that reputation. Uh, and to your point, the big thing, the big difference is that you were given credit uh, right. We've got on, on the albums. Yeah, right. yeah. As opposed to you know the the old session guys who just you know went from session to session and right. grabbed their cash and and that was about it. I was more interested in doing projects rather than just mm -hmm. being a session guy, just doing a, a ten to one, a two to five. You know, I I was more interested in doing projects like playing on a, a Jackson Brown record or a, yeah. one of Carol's records. Yeah. And, um, yeah. you know, and I became a terrible snob from working with these brilliant songwriters, you know. <laughs> I bet. You know, I had developed an attitude because I, I knew what great stuff was, you know. Yeah. So I didn't yeah. have a taste for mediocre stuff. And I think any session musician will tell you that maybe 80% of what they do is just okay or flat out mediocre. Or, oh, okay. All right. So you were unwilling to uh, to do that. Plus the opportunities were, were out there. And let's face it, the music business in the 70s is much bigger than it is in the 1960s, especially the rock and roll world. That's right. uh, you know, it's now become big business uh, out there. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, so we got you to LA. Did you meet, did you meet Carol in New York or in, yeah. in LA? I met you Carol know. at the Night Owl Cafe when I was playing with the Flying Machine. Oh, okay. And um, there was a band that also played there called the Middle Class. This band, the middle class, were really, really good. And I made friends with a few. And then one of them was Charlie Larkey, who was the bass player in that band. Mm. And he and I got to be good pals. And at the time, uh, Carol was Carol and Jerry were managing or, or producing or writing for the middle class. They wanted to have their own rock and roll band at that point, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, Charlie told 
Carol about this terrific band, The Flying Machine, our band. And James was, you know, obviously great. So she came down. And boy, I was, I was shocked. I was so thrilled to meet her because she was already, I had no oh, yeah. tremendous respect for her and Jerry and what they'd done. I knew she was great. So I was thrilled like hell to, to meet her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then we started working. For some reason, she dug my playing and started calling me to play on their demos. And that's the first real experience I had in the studio was playing on, on their demos. Uh, oh, really? Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, that's not a, a bad place to start. Uh, your uh, recording career is with Carol King, mm -hmm. who's already already a well-known commodity. Right. So did that is that what got you out to L.A.? Uh, more or less, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, like I said, I, I joined this little band, Clear Light, and came out there yeah. with them, but that only lasted a couple of months. Mm -hmm. And after that, I was mainly working with Carol on her yeah. on her demos uh, for Screen Jams, you know, publishing, mm -hmm. and then. Uh, once uh, she signed with Lou, playing on uh, that out the city album, which is the first full length album I ever played on. Mm -hmm. So was that? Or I, I guess that's right around the time where the Laurel Canyon scene, which, oh, yeah. which is getting a lot of attention right now. There's yeah, we all lived up there. Yeah. The last I lived there. So did you, you? I was going to ask you. You lived up there as well. Uh, yeah, along with well, along with Neil and Joni Mitchell and Crosby, Stills, and, and all everybody lived there. So that must, right. you know, it. it you, you talk about a magical uh, time and I guess that's why that's getting so much attention. And it's also geographically easy to kind of like point your finger at it and say, aha, mm -hmm. here is what it must be the water here. That's, that's what it was. <laughs> right. So what, what was it about Laurel Canyon that, that I, I, some people ask me and I'm from LA. So I, I always say, well, you know, it's, it's easy. It's the clubs were down at the bottom of Crescent Heights and sunset right there. You know, you had Pandora's box, which doesn't exist anymore, but right. also you had, you had uh, um, uh, you know, the whiskey and the, the Roxy and Doug Weston's was around the corner and all that other stuff. So it, 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 it was just geographically desirable. I'd say. That's one thing. It was cheap. It's not, you know. Yeah, it's not cheap anymore. <laughs> no, it certainly isn't. But it was cheap and you could get a house with a nice little garden and stuff like that. And, yeah. uh, you know, it was conducive towards, you know, writing, playing and writing songs. Yeah. Um, because it, it wasn't like in, a, in an apartment where, uh, yeah. you know. Yeah. So uh, it, that's kind of it. But in, in, in L.A. at that time, everyone knew everyone. And everyone yeah, so you were all hanging out with each other. Everyone so it's almost like out. a finishing school uh, right there. Yeah, to some degree. Everyone was hanging out. Everyone knew everyone else. Everyone was very helpful. I couldn't believe it. When I first got there, I met Crosby was one of the first people I met, one of the first, the first stars I met. And, oh. uh, you know, I loved the birds. And but he was just great. He was, he was absolutely lovely to me and very generous. And uh, mm. It's funny because Waddy says when he first moved, Crosby was one of the first people he met, and the same says the same thing. So well, that's because Cros Cros always had the best drugs. Let's face it. Well, I always had good weed. That's true. Um, but uh, and he could also roll a really good spliff. Well, that, that was a, a that was a, a terrific talent back then. Um, but he was just a great guy. Stills too. They were all very generous and and and, and terrific. And uh, and everyone, like I said, everyone knew everyone else. Everyone helped everyone else. If somebody needed an app you'd loan them an app, you know, and uh, yeah. that's the kind of vibe it was. So, and it was different than New York. New York was colder, less gigs, less stuff, less of a community like that. Uh, so more, more competitive, more, more dog eat dog, more cutthroat. Yeah. Uh -huh. And uh, you know, the less gigs, more guys, less gigs, colder, more difficult to get around. So mm -hmm. LA uh, was um, kind of uh, got to be 
the place a to cool, be. A cool, chill vibe uh, right. where, right. where musicians could be musicians and, and there was a lot of collaboration yeah. going on. Yeah, at that, at that period of time, yeah, that was the case. Yeah, yeah. Which, as as uh, you know, you know, my my musical career is in the '80s and early '90s in LA, and it's not uh, collaborative. It's very competitive. At that uh, point, it had gotten very very competitive, right? Of course yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you 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 know, you you couldn't beg for a job at uh, at Tower Records, uh, right. and and then you would be in the music business, you know. So it's just uh, yeah, right. how incredibly uh, uh, competitive it was at that time. But that wasn't the case in that late '60s. 60s, early 70s uh, period uh, surrounding Laurel Canyon. Yeah, not quite. But like I said, it's a very open kind of situation. And, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was enough, you know, you didn't need to be rich in order to eat and like live in a house and drive a car. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a very um, equanimous uh, kind of situation. So what, what's your, what, what do you, th- you know, if I were to just ask, what's your fondest memory that comes to mind of coming oh, to LA and falling listen, into I got, that scene? Know, uh, my memories involve uh, the great people I work with, you know, Peter and Peter Asher, James and Lou mm-hmm. Carroll, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, my other pals. And then finally, when I met Russ and Lee, you know, we've been playing together for 50 years, man. You know, here we are still in a band together. I know. So, to, you know, it, it's, it's, now, it, I'm, I'm going it's on 20 big... with my band. And I, I'm, I don't know if I still like my guys. <laughs> so it's, it, it's one big memory. It's one big, beautiful memory. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. To, to, to pick out one thing would be it would it wouldn't do service to all the other great stuff that happened. Mm-hmm, I, mean, mm-hmm. I I loved playing on stage with the people I got to be on stage with and touring. I loved playing those songs. Again, getting on stage with James Taylor, song after song after song, they're all great. Jackson yeah. Brown, every song is great. Every song. Every song, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, to your point, you you mentioned you 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 uh, you didn't have a, an a, an aptitude to mediocrity. No, I thought I got very spoiled very quickly because of playing with these great, incredibly talented people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, Jackson Brown, and and uh, you know I've talked to, to to Russ and Leland about this. Um, mm-hmm. To me, Running on Empty, uh, maybe the greatest live album ever made. Well, it's one of it's one of you know uh, because because it's original material, uh, mostly right. mostly original material. Yeah. Can you imagine the it's, balls of this guy. <laughs> that is fucking balls. Now? Yeah, that's the point. That's, that's Jackson all, all over. Jesus, He's you know. Uh, to just um, uh, say, oh yeah, well, I'm gonna take a bunch of original material and make it live. But but because he had you guys, mm-hmm. he could get away with it. Well, because we I, stuff, you listen yeah. to that record, you it it sounds like a studio record. You know that maybe oh they flew in the live stuff. You know to to to, to just sweeten sure. it up. But no, that it, it's literally you guys out on the floor every night, huh? It's, it's live, yeah. Yeah, that's that, uh, and and I guess. You know, um, uh, a lot of it is that you guys were working together as a band. I mean, mm-hmm. the section had a, a deal itself. You right. had, th- I believe, three albums that were made in the 1970s. Right. So it's not like you're put together. You know, you did a couple of weeks of rehearsal and you ran out on the road. You know, you guys are already this super tight band. I think that's right. a right. That's a bad way to say. Well, we knew by that time we really knew how to play songs because that's all we did all day long was learn and play songs. And uh, a lot of times with like the greatest of the great, you know, so uh, we got really good at it and we found a sound for Jackson pretty quick and uh, learned his material real quick. And away we went. Like I said, great songs. It's easier to play a great song than a not so great song. uh, (laughs) It certainly makes it interesting every night, doesn't it? Yeah. 
and that's the thing you really get involved with with jackson you really get involved in his tunes you're not just it's not just a gig they're like mm-hmm. those songs really speak to you you start thinking about your oh, own yeah. life you know and, yeah. and all this so it's it's not just a gig it's like it's, it's a way of life yeah well and that's isn't that what the the, the point of the album is about yes a way right. of life yeah I mean, if you want to talk about capturing life on the road and what it means to be, uh, you know, a touring musician, uh, which is a very difficult lifestyle, Uh, it it does Mm -hmm. not bode itself well to uh, a a long life and a and a happy and a happy wife Mm -hmm. uh, sort of thing. Uh, There's a a lot of bumps and bruises that come along with that. uh, Yes, there can be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, But I I think you know, in a weird sort of way, um, you know, you got to. You, you didn't have to deal with a lot of that because you could always move around uh, even playing like the same song every night. I mean, you know, the, you know, I just saw the stones last year and you know, f- you know, they still have to play satisfaction every single night right? Mm-hmm. for going on close to 70 years. Now. That's, <laughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so you kind of get the best of both worlds. Uh, you get mm-hmm. to move around and you know, you can play running on empty, but you only have to play it, uh, you know, every five or six years uh, <laughs> or something like that. I did get to see you guys at the NAM awards in uh, 2018, right. uh, received the, when Jackson got the tech and to see you guys play running on empty. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was the first time you'd all been together since, uh, since that's right. Yeah, that was pretty incredible. Pretty that was great. Mm-hmm. Couldn't miss yeah. that. So, mm-hmm. so uh, somebody else I want to ask you about about Harry Nilsson. Um, you know, uh, because uh, I did talk to both Russ and Lee uh, about Warren, um, but you got to work with Harry Nilsson, which is yes. you know he's getting a moment in the sun again. I think. Well, um, I would hope so. Deservedly so, mm-hmm. wouldn't you say? Yeah, I definitely, definitely. Yeah. And yeah. as you said, one of the two smartest men that you ever got yes. a chance to work with yes. was Warren and 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 Harry. Yeah. So why so? Why why what what made them so brilliant? Man, I don't know. Harry just well, he knew everything. He, he was he 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 was very well read. Mm-hmm. He he knew, he knew all the great movies. He knew all the great literature. He knew poetry. He, he's a really well rounded guy intellectually, and uh, I learned an awful lot hanging out with him. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, and of course Warren was a musical prodigy. Yeah, uh, that's true. Know, but he also Warren also bright. knew all about movies and all about literature yeah. and poetry. And he's yeah, also. You know, just uh, like that's why I described them as very bright because of their uh, their knowledge beyond music. You know, yeah. what else yeah. they knew and what they brought to the game uh, with this, um, you know, kind of uh, overall knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, somebody else that uh, that gets recognized a lot around here um, uh, and means a, a lot to me. Uh, is Linda Ronstadt. Mm. Uh, you got to do a lot with her, including being her boyfriend, I believe, in two videos. Well, uh, one anyway. <laughs> well, get no, get closer. Let's face it. She turns around. You're the guy behind the uh, uh, the um, uh, the blinds playing guitar, right? Oh, I guess so. You know, I haven't seen that video in forever. <laughs> Maybe you're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're the only guy in the movie, in the in the in the video. Uh, you know, I'd forgotten. So I'd forgotten all that you now. get to be you get to be Linda's love twice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, too bad uh, not in real life, though. Unfortunately, <laughs> really, <laughs> not great. once. No, not once. She's the greatest. She's just so incredible, an incredible person. Also, very, very smart, but also somebody that, like Neil, just follows her own star. She just does what she wants to do. She's she's artistically curious and hungry, and yeah, uh, which is why she could uh, go to all these different genres and styles and do them all perfectly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I loved playing in her band. The band was great, for one thing, of course. And also, song after song. It's a, you know, a George Jones song. 
an Elvis Costello song, a Jim Webb song. Yeah, she you wasn't know. a writer. She was more of a stylist. But uh, she, yeah, but she picked all those songs. She was had an absolute genius for picking the right material for her. And, yeah, uh, yeah. So well, uh, again, her and Peter Asher uh, working together. Uh, yeah. You know, there's there's that glue, that kind of that guy that uh, keeps uh, coming up over and over oh, again. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, so uh, it's you know we want we want to give credit to to. Oh yeah. Peter out there. And yeah, what, what he did. you can't give Peter Escher too much credit, you know, for what he's no, achieved. not for that singer songwriter period uh, in the early seventies. Uh, I mean, he he kind of like uh, puts it all together, and it you know it's a perfect timing, uh, you know, as well. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about that in our rock and roll archaeology uh, documentary series about the you know the 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 change of uh, you know the revolutionary sixties into a more evolutionary seventies. Uh, that, uh, you know, people wanted to get away from, uh, you know, the fighting in the streets and, mm -hmm. and all the issues and wanted something a little bit more peaceful. I mean, most of the hippies had moved out of the hate and moved to the country, lived in communes or what have you. So it kind of all fits into that, that, you know, closer to the ground, uh, getting mm -hmm. back to mother nature, uh, type of sound that uh, is all right there. And you, you, you are a big part of that as well. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but with Linda, um, uh, like we said, you know, uh, and I just reminded you, you know, you, you are. Uh, the guy behind the uh, Venetian blinds uh, that she opens up uh, in the video. You, yeah. you actually played guitar on that song. That's right, uh, that yeah. is, uh, uh, and then in the other video, uh, What's New, which was part of the uh, Nelson Riddle uh, material that she was uh, she was doing. Right. Uh, you you play uh, the love interest in the video, but you're not the guitar player. <clears throat> it's actually yeah. um, Tommy Tedesco. Who's playing guitar on that oh, track? Absolutely. That's right. Whose I, I, son yeah. is now the director of your immediate family documentary. That's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My, how the circle just grows. Sure does. Yeah. Well, as you know, Tommy Tedesco is legendary, maybe the most legendary session musician of all. Yeah. Know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, he is just in, in, a, in a world of his own. Really, you know. So yeah, it is. It is great. And yes, and Denny Tedesco is a wonderful fellow. Yeah. We love working with him. I bet. I bet. He did a great job with the Wrecking Crew. Documentary. And I think I think it helped. You know, we talked a little bit about this, uh, this, this golden age of documentaries uh, and interest in the, yeah. this, this period of time. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, he kind of helped kick that off with uh, with the, the Wrecking Crew, uh, you know, because it right. just really exposed a whole it, it was almost like he lifted up a rock. That yeah. you went, holy crap! There's a bunch of these rocks around. Right. <laughs> let's let's start lifting up all of these rocks and, and right. finding about that. You know, well, these, <laughs> you know, those guys are really, really great musicians. All of them, really oh, great. Yeah. Most of them are jazz musicians, and uh, yeah, they can really play, really play. Um, and it's it's great that they got uh, finally some recognition for the great work that they've been doing for that they have been doing for forever. Mm -hmm. Well, now, you know, the, the spotlight has turned to, to you guys uh, with the immediate family and all of the work that, that you guys did. A, a much smaller contingent of players. Uh, I think, there, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a million people that you could call were in the, the Wrecking Crew. Or it's certainly close to 100. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of when you get people that, fit, that fit in that uh, <laughs> under the rubric of, of Wrecking Crew. Right, right. But not under immediate family or the section, uh, you know, yeah. uh, it's, that's, that's a much smaller uh, group of people. Um, but the, some of that recognition, I, I, I want to point out again, back to Linda Ronstadt, is that Live 80 that came out last year mm -hmm. uh, with you um, uh, and Russ. Uh, I, th I think Daniel Gold is on uh, 
I think Andrew's on that. Yeah. Andrew, I, 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 yeah. And uh, who's the other guitar player that's with you? It might be Dan. Um, it's probably Dan Dugmore. It is Dan Dugmore. Yeah. Yeah. Very, yeah. Very fine player. <laughs> I, I mean, um, you know, uh, it takes a lot to impress the guys in my band. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but that album impressed the shit out of all huh. of us. We, we all were like, why did this thing not come out in 1980? Why was it? Was was it hidden like that? Yeah. Uh, it's just absolutely amazing. You guys are on fire. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, uh, I, I told Russ after I talked to him, literally the second I got off the phone with him, I went and watched it again just to, mm -hmm. just to go, Jesus, it's just incredible. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, your guitar work is, you're, you're, you're just quite the standout in it, I think is, is my point. Well, I don't know about that. That band is an incredible band with Billy Payne on keys, yeah, Russell, Billy Payne on keys. Bobby Glaub on bass. I mean, everyone yeah. in that band. Yeah, 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 yeah. It it literally is the creme de la creme uh, yeah. at that at that moment. Right. Uh, and it's just sad that it didn't, you know, uh, continue. But uh, you know, to your point, I mean, L Linda kind of moved around and was constantly searching for a new star. And, oh, and yeah, yeah. She's curious. She's uh, artistically uh, not re restless, not reckless. Yeah. And uh, and yeah. she's curious, and she had it in her head that she'd done rock and roll and done great with a great band. Yeah. And yeah. Then she wanted to do something else. She wanted to try other stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's just, uh, you know, but again, that's growth and that, and uh, that's, you know, you, you, you know, Neil Young, the reason Neil's been around for 60 years is because he's constantly evolving. He's constantly changing. Right, right. You've done the same thing, you know, um, the well, work, right. you know, of your two solo albums is, mm -hmm. you know, literally night and day uh, right. out there. And it's funny, you know, it does bring, you know, I can hear some of that evolution of your curiosity, which then opens up those doors to some of these new sounds that are coming out at the beginning of the eighties, which then gets you that gig with Don Henley, which, you know, then, you know, you're, you're inventing things like the guitar synthesizer, uh, which, uh, you know, I, I, as I told you when we were talking in the green room that I had never seen before until I saw that tour, uh, building the perfect beast, which I consider one of the top five shows I've ever seen in my life. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, by the way, who was the bass player? Uh, on that tour. Uh, I think that's Jennifer Condos. Jennifer Condos. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah, Jen, right. Really, really good, good musician, terrific person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and just, 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 uh, you know, uh, you want it, 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 it's so hard when you're somebody like Don Henley, who is such attached to a giant band, it's like it's Paul McCartney, John Lennon. I mean, they, that's that's how yeah. the Eagles are in the 70s, right? right? Mm -hmm. And to reinvent yourself. Um, you know, and it's funny, you know, uh, and, and R.I.P. Glenn Fry, and I love all, all that Glenn did, but his first solo album is like, oh, you know, that that's an expectation. Okay, yeah, I can see that. Don's, on the other hand, is like a whole nother world. Well, you know, he, he uh, one of the mandates that he had when we started that first album was, don't no Eagles stuff, no ooze in the background. You're right. You know, <laughs> no, no four part harmonies. <laughs> yeah, no four part harmonies, no acoustic guitar or very little or practically none. He wanted yeah. to go a different way. He wanted to create a different sound. And yeah. uh, he wanted to be more rocking and more uh, just different and not sound like the Eagles. He wanted to make a statement that this is him and not, you know, not just an Eagles retread. And he's very very wise and very courageous to do that. Make that, that uh, yeah. take that band. Yeah. Yeah. What was your first producing credit? Uh, I guess the first album I produced was for an artist named Louise Goffin. And Louise was the daughter of Carolyn Jerry. Oh, Jerry. Jerry. Yeah. Okay. Oh, oh. And uh, 
uh, Peter Asher recommended me. She was, she had been signed, I guess, to a, a, a asylum, and and Peter Asher recommended me as pro to produce it, which mm -hmm. I'd had I'd never produced anything before. But by that time, I'd had so much experience working with really terrific producers. I knew I knew. I kind of knew what the deal was, right? Yes, I did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, and, uh, that led to other producing credits, uh, and then you, and then obviously, once you do the three albums with with uh, Henley, you know right. you're you know, your your first call uh, kind of guy. And well, in fact, you get to, while, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, you get to do two rather interesting uh, albums. Uh, bon Jovi, you worked uh, with uh, on Blaze of Glory. Yeah, that's uh, right. That must have been kind of a little bit different. It was very different, but it was a lot of fun. Everyone, mm -hmm. everyone just had a ball on that record. John, Johnny is a really good guy, a very, and, and he was a lot of fun to be around. He's, and he was open to what was going on. Mm -hmm. Once he got me as producer, I brought in, you know, great players that I knew he would dig, and he did it with the whole thing. Everybody was really looking forward to coming to those sessions. We had a ball mm -hmm. on those things, and he had a ball too. He, he really, because the pressure was off of him in terms of making a uh, Bon Jovi band album. Right. So, uh, you know, it's a different kind of situation. Yeah, by fun. then, by then he, you know, he he'd hit that peak uh, type of initial stardom that uh, that occurs, and and he could uh, begin to uh, look around and and uh, see what he wanted to do next. Which is, right, that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so you were the guy to help uh, navigate that. Well, yeah, he he hired me. I guess he had a list of guys, and um, you know, ended up uh, me being the guy, which is great. Mm -hmm, yeah, and then you did, uh, uh, I think, Van Halen's uh, second album with uh, Gary Sharon. Is that right? All right. Uh, I started, I spent about four, uh, three or four months uh, working with uh, Van Halen, trying to get something going over there, and uh, with no luck at all. I mean, listen, Eddie's an absolute genius. I mean, he's uh, one of the most influential musicians of the last you name it <laughs> oh i i i can re i still remember the day uh, you know i first heard uh, running with the devil it's, yeah you know, i'll never forget that day yeah. you know it's, absolutely it's a game brilliant. changer yeah mm -hmm. him and alex on drums is a formidable combination and michael anthony the great rhythm section yeah. and um uh gary sharon it was not a good fit um it, it turned out you know mm -hmm. um uh, i think that um eddie was not crazy with the lyrics he was writing they didn't have enough how can I say this? He didn't have enough pussy in them. <laughs> you know, if you can't if you can't write songs about pussy, you're probably not going to be the right guy for <laughs> to be writing. You know, you think? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And hey, little lyrics, you know. Uh, right. In any case, it didn't work out, and it's the whole thing just kind of stalled. Eddie was having health problems even back then, and mm -hmm. it just kind of ground to a halt. You know, it was unfortunate because I love him, and you know, I have nothing but tremendous respect and affection for Eddie. And Alex, yeah. great, great musicians, great people mm -hmm. too. Yeah, yeah. So producer, <clears throat> guitar player, uh, soundtracks. Uh, I love that you worked on the film The Commitments. The Commitments, okay. I didn't work on that film, but I did produce some tracks for Andrew Strong, who was the uh, lead singer guy. Right. The Commitments. So, yeah. So, so was this after the the album or the the uh, the, the movie or yeah, oh, was after, after oh the movie. so it was after the movie oh, oh okay yeah. okay because uh, I I know you did some kind of wonderful uh, yes that's I think right. you you worked on, on on that one but that was uh, that was after they kind of realized they could continue this as a band sort of thing or or at least he could uh, uh -huh. uh, as opposed to just uh, you know the movie side of things well they they gave Andrew a record deal. MCA mm. got him, gave him a record deal. You know, he mm. was kind of charismatic and he, he definitely could sing. 
Yeah. So he got a deal, but Andrew, really, I mean, that's kind of premature for him. He really didn't know what he wanted to do. And was, you know, wasn't, wasn't sure about what direction he should take mm-hmm. and probably still isn't, <laughs> you know, his, his, his biggest shot was being in the commitments. And I, you know, maybe yeah. there's still a touring band with some of the cast members that go out and there probably is. Right, right, right. So you're now sitting around waiting for COVID to open up the doors so you guys can get back to making uh, the documentary Immediate Family. Well, hardly sitting around, you know. Mm-hmm. We're working on material now. We're making another video. Uh, of, Are you uh, doing this all remotely? Yeah, yeah. Social distancing and all that? Uh, great show, yeah. yeah. But we're, we're, gonna, we're about to get together to uh, do the streaming gig. So we're going to get together and rehearse for a couple of days. And then go in and do this gig, which, which will be streamed. And that's at the end of this mm-hmm. month. So it'll be in a venue. Uh, yeah. So And you guys will be together uh, interacting. Yes. Um, how do you feel about that? I, I, I asked because uh, I, I had a question last night uh, at our, our, our little Zoom band meeting uh, mm-hmm. about when we're getting together. Well, two, there's two things we feel about it. One is that uh, we were convinced that it was going to be the safest possible venue, the safest way of doing this possible. Everyone will be wearing masks, except for, of course, when we play our songs. But uh, right. the crew that's filming us will all be, you know, they'll all be tested to see if they have a fever. Everything will be swabbed down, of course. And uh, it's, it'll be as safe as it possibly can be. The people are doing it. Uh, I think the main danger of, uh, of the virus is going out in groups of people, you know, like sporting events, concerts, that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, for people to rush out and congregate like that, it, it's going to be dangerous. And... In my opinion, it's not going to go away anytime soon and probably will spike again. It seems to be spiking again now. Uh, You know, I think uh, uh, some of us got complacent, um, especially over the Memorial Day weekend. uh, And we're now starting to see some of these um, um, these states uh, that really jumped in with both feet uh, spike. Now that we had the protests over the last couple of weeks, um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens um, yeah. in yeah. the, you know, because it's a, you know, two to three week uh, lag time uh, for symptoms yeah. to really uh, get dangerous. And, yeah. you know, if this follows anything like the Spanish flu of 1918, really, we really got to worry about it all over again in significant form uh, in the fall and winter of uh, 2021. I think we're definitely going to have to. Yeah. All yeah. we can do is, is hope like hell that, uh, they come up with a vaccine for this thing that at least slow it down or stop it, you know? And yeah. Yeah. We just, uh, yeah. that's the same thing. Everyone that everyone all over the world is hoping for. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it just, I, yeah. I, you know, um, yeah, I think you were born in 43 and uh, you know, that's the end of world, the middle of world war two. That's mm-hmm. the last time that I think we were in anything like what we're in today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, such You're a right. game changer uh, of, of that. Uh, and to, to I, I never, you know, considered that, you know, music would come to a stop. Uh, and, you know, uh, again, <clears throat> musicians will, uh, uh, will evolve, uh, will, uh, you know, build a, a, a new uh, world uh, so that we can still enjoy it. Um, but, you know, to not be in a room, you know, I, I think about you guys as myself standing in a stage uh, without an audience. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's the energy that symbiotic relationship that occurs between the the player and the and the audience is just missing that just seems it's going to be weird you're absolutely right yeah uh, you know it is it's, it's it's not good and um everyone every musician that 
has performed would you know can't wait to get back on stage and play in front of people that's what it's yeah. all about yeah so yeah it's it's bad uh, it's but, it's like i said but all musicians the idea of you know a, a musician somebody that's creating music or something someone that creates art whatever it is is you must adapt you yeah. gotta adapt you gotta improvise you can overcome find a way around things and find new ways of doing things that's the nature of everything it's certainly the nature of art it never stays the same it's never stagnant it's always moving and um, the forms of delivery will always be moving obviously playing live is, is the best thing well uh, you basically just summed up your entire career for me here uh, that's what you've done you yeah, evolved you adapted you moved uh, from place to place you learned you delved uh, uh, into uh, 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 secret knowledge if you will uh, and uh, you know picked up uh, and constantly uh, changed with the uh, the situation uh, at hand right uh, so uh, you know there there will be a future for for you guys uh, mm -hmm. definitely uh, mm -hmm. and I can't wait to, to see that on the other side yeah definitely absolutely. Well, Danny Cooch Korchmar, thanks so much for being with us on Deep. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. All the best. Thanks to Cooch. Danny Korchmar, everybody. Uh, first and foremost, go check out uh, the Immediate Family uh, info. You can find it on Facebook. Uh, they're on YouTube. Um, they don't really have a website, um, but that's okay. They're all over social. Um, you should be able to find them there. And, of course, you can find Danny uh, as well. I think Danny does have a Facebook page. Uh, okay. There is three from the band. But remember... We still have Wadi Wachtel and Steve Postel coming in a few weeks, so hold tight for that one. So, I'll finish with something Danny-related, and that is the Cameron Crowe written and Amy Heckerling directed Fast Times at Ridgemont High. A few weeks ago, there was a table read of the film's script starring Brad Pitt, Jennifer Aniston, Julia Roberts, Jimmy Kimmel, Morgan Freeman, a great Shia LaBeouf as Spicoli, which makes the original Sean Penn spit milk with laughter every time he is on. Uh, Matthew McConaughey, Ray Liotta, John Legend, Henry Golding, and Dane Cook, who sponsored and uh, the event uh, for CORE, which is Sean Penn's COVID-19 testing and relief services, along with his Reform Alliance, which is focused on reforming the criminal justice system. Anyway, it was great, and you should watch it. Of course, afterwards, I had such a wonderful, nostalgic time, I had to watch the original from 1982. Probably something I haven't done in 
decades. You know, I, I wouldn't exactly call Ridgemont High a great film. It's a, it's a good film, and it holds up well, you know, certainly for those seeking the nostalgia drug uh, on a random pandemic night. Um, if you haven't seen it in a while, uh, after watching the table read, yeah, go watch this. Um, but younger viewers will see yeah, outdated fashion and unrealistic looks at their high school years. I mean, like, uh, there are no metal detectors. Come on, man. What are you talking about? So, you know, it's it's a time capsule. Uh, but it's a fair representation of teenage suburban life at the time. Um, it isn't just a romp uh, like, uh, you know, a Caddyshack or, God forbid, uh, Porky's. Um, you know, so there is a realness to it, you know, even without metal detectors. I know, kids. Um, first, the, the soundtrack... Uh, it's pretty awesome for its time, uh, though perhaps a little too SoCal cool with uh, songs by more than four-fifths of the Eagles and um, others that kind of fall into that oeuvre. Uh, even the cover band in the movie plays Life in the Fast Lane. I'm sure Irving Azoff being a producer on the movie is the one to point the finger at for all of that. But that moving in stereo scene, well... Yeah, every guy loved that. And uh, there are other gems uh, used in the, the flick as well. Hey, I bet you didn't know that our Pantheon podcast host of Invisible Arts, Richard Gibbs, who I just told you about at the top of the show, has a part to play in the movie. Richard, being the keyboardist for Oingo Boingo at the time, played on the credits rolling song Goodbye, Goodbye. Um, By the way, which was a major fight to get into the film. Uh, and that wraps me all the way back around to Danny Korchmar. He has two songs in the film. Uh, the first being Love Rules with uh, said Don Henley. Oh, there are those eagles again. Azov! And the central song to the film, Somebody's Baby. The reference of the great song, Somebody's Baby, is to what... Yeah, what actually ends up being the central character of the flick, and that is Stacy, played to perfection by Jennifer Jason Lee. Funny thing is that, uh, if you notice, Sean Penn gets top billing as Spicoli, but like the book, it really is the story of Stacy and her growing up at that moment in history. She's the central character, and, you know, in 1980 teen comedy sex romps, the ladies were never the central character, so that is a pleasant surprise. Anyway, she is somebody's baby. Of course, in the end, she is Mark Ratner's, uh, the rat. Hey, did you know the guy rat was modeled on, uh, went on to write those for dummies books? Uh, how about that? Crazy thing when you're doing the research. Of course, Danny Korchmar wrote Somebody's Baby, along with Jackson Brown. And by the way, Russ Kunkel plays drums on it as well. And there is the Stevie Nicks song, uh, not on the soundtrack, but in the film, Sleeping Angel, with Waddy playing guitar. Uh, let's face it, Stevie, don't go anywhere without Waddy. Oh, and it's mixed by our good friend, recording legend, Shelly Akas. Uh, lots of immediate family references. Lots of Pantheon podcast references. Um, just by association, that is. Uh, shall I make it even weirder? Uh, you know, I had a conversation with Robert Margleff this week, and he produced the Oingo Boingo song. 
Who knew in 40 years after the release of this seminal film, I'd be talking to so many people associated with it. It, it, it was weird. I, I, I saw the film. I saw Danny's name uh, while the credits rolled. I listened to the Oingo Boingo song as the credits rolled. And there's Danny, there's Richard. And I said, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the end of this uh, about uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. It's, it's kind of a little in the zeitgeist, maybe a little past when you listen to this. But seemed like the the appropriate thing. Uh, and, and then I went into this rabbit hole and found all kinds of people that we have spoken to that have been associated with, uh, uh, with, uh, the, uh, the film. So anyway, uh, that was a fine, fun side trip. And I think it says that we are talking to some really great people who did some really amazing things, uh, for music, uh, over the years. Okay. That is it for this week. Next week, I'll be doing a two-part series on the record label Little Village Foundation. First up, I had the pleasure to speak with label president Jim Pugh, and then I will release my interview with the Sons of the Soul Revivers, uh, uh, who bridge gospel, soul, and early rock and roll. Uh, Their leader, Dwayne Morgan, will join us the week after. Uh, Jim and his team of unique musicians uh, are really a special story uh, I want to highlight, and I really loved the new record by The Suns. So please tune into these two uh, upcoming shows. I'll leave you with a last bit of cooch, uh, but in the guise of Ronnie Pudding, because movies and music, right? Okay, until then, first, vote early and often, and then keep up the rockin'. Stop wasting my Diggs is hosted by Christian Swain. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Sound designed by Busy Signal Studios. Engineered by Jerry Danielson, Christy O'Donnell, and Leslie Barker. Find all of our shows, notes, and social links at PantheonPodcast.com. Contact us on social at Pantheon Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found used in this podcast for purchase or streaming wherever you get your great music. Please pick up these amazing tracks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at fantasy points. Fantasypoints.com code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.